Precisely 100 years ago this month, at the height of one of the most brutal wars in history, the guns on both sides fell silent. Christmas in the Trenches, the masterful song by John McCutcheon I sang for you earlier this morning, tells only a very small part of the amazing story of the Christmas truce of 1914. The conflict in Europe had already claimed hundreds of thousands of killed, wounded, and missing. Both sides expected a long and bloody war. The penalty for fraternizing with the enemy was death. But as Christmas approached, friendly banter echoed across the lines. Many German soldiers had worked in Britain as waiters, cooks, and cabbies and spoke very good English. A week before Christmas near Amantieres, German troops slipped a chocolate cake into the British lines. We propose having a concert tonight, the note read, as it is our captain's birthday, and we cordially invite you to attend. At the appointed hour, eight German heads appeared above the trench and sang lustily. When the British applauded, a German called out, Please come meet us into the chorus. A Brit shouted back, We'd rather die than sing German. Without missing a beat, the German replied, It would kill us if you did. <laughs> and with an emotional performance of Die Wacht am Rhein, the concert ended. As darkness fell on December 23rd on the parapets at Messine, Saxons from Leipzig began erecting row upon row of small Christmas trees, complete with candles, fastened with clamps. Dazzled by the twinkling tannenbaums, British officers agreed to an informal truce through Christmas Day. Christmas Eve dawned cold and clear. Taking advantage of perfect flying conditions, the Royal Flying Corps dropped a well-cushioned, brandy-infused plum pudding onto the German airfield at Lille. The next day, the Germans reciprocated with a very careful airdrop of rum. As night fell on Christmas Eve, firing ceased all along no man's land. With the dawn, hand-lettered signs began to appear. You know fight, we know fight on the German side. Merry Christmas on the British. North of Pauvrange, a handful of German soldiers clambered out of a trench and walked unarmed toward the Belgians opposite, singing and shouting, Comrades! Nonplussed, the Belgians put down their weapons and welcomed them. At Foucaucourt on the Somme, a Bavarian lieutenant led 300 men halfway to the French wire, where he explained to a startled French captain that his men did not wish to fight on Christmas. There ensued for days afterward a lively exchange of bread, cognac, postcards, and newspapers, with efficient communication between the lines ensured by a superbly trained German shepherd carrying dispatches. <laughs> Music softened hearts on both sides. A French harmonica player played Stille Nacht. A German violinist offered Handel's Largo. And the famed tenor Victor Granier of the Paris Opera delivered Minuit Chrétien, O Holy Night, in a voice so pure it stunned both sides of no man's land into silence. Opposing units engaged in good-natured combat by Christmas Carol. Lieutenant Edward Hulse of the 2nd Scots Guards wrote to his mother that they had assaulted the Germans with their singing. 
But after several antiphonal exchanges, they sang together Good King Wenceslas and Auld Lang Syne, which we all, English, Scots, Irish, Prussians, Württembergers, etc., joined in. It was absolutely astounding, and if I had seen it on a cinematograph film, I should have sworn that it was faked. Albert Morin of the 2nd Queen's Regiment near La Chapelle d'Armentières marveled at the illuminated tannenbaums and the sweet singing. It was a beautiful moonlit night, he recalled, frost on the ground, white almost everywhere, and those lights, I don't know what they were, and they sang Silent Night, Stille Nacht. I shall never forget it. It was one of the highlights of my life. No shoot tonight, the Germans would shout. Sing tonight, sing tonight. Singing led to more greetings and repartee, frequently followed by a few bold souls climbing out of the trenches on both sides, shaking hands and exchanging gifts of food, drink, and tobacco. In the pre-dawn darkness, the second Bedfordshires were amazed to hear the Germans singing Annie Laurie in perfect English. Encore, they shouted, good old Fritz. Then they heard a voice. I am a lieutenant. Gentlemen, my life is in your hands. I am out of my trench and walking towards you. Will one of your officers come out and meet me halfway? The British captain suspected an ambush, but the German called again. I am halfway across now, alone and unarmed. Moved by the man's courage, the captain crossed the barbed wire to meet his counterpart as the German singing swelled. What a sight, recalled Corporal John Ferguson of the Seaforth Highlanders north of Plugstert Wood. Little groups of Germans and British extending almost the length of our front. Out of the darkness, we could hear laughter and see lighted matches. Everyone seemed to be getting on nicely. Here we were laughing and chatting to men when only a few hours before we were trying to kill them. German beer was swapped for British plum pudding, sauerkraut for chocolate cake. A Londoner in the Third Rifles got a haircut from a Saxon who had been his barber in High Holborn. Near Amontiers, a German juggler who had performed in London entertained the riflemen of the Third Londons. At the sight of troops from both sides gathering amicably for the show, an apoplectic German officer tore off his, tore off his greatcoat and dashed it to the ground, shouting, War? This is war? Well, I'm a... And he burst into tears. Soccer matches sprang up all along the lines. The Times of London would publish a letter from a major in the medical corps who testified that after the Saxons sang God Save the King to the Brits, they joined in a football match, which the Saxons won 3-2. to two. Kurt Zemich of the 134th Saxons recorded in his diary a lively game of soccer. How marvelously wonderful, yet how strange it was. Thus Christmas, the celebration of love, managed to bring mortal enemies together as friends for a time. Other troops engaged in races on bicycles without tires found in abandoned farmhouses. Elsewhere, a boxing match was arranged between a German and a Briton, each nearly six foot six, six inches tall, who hammered each other evenly until pulled apart by their comrades. Both sides took advantage of the truce to bury their dead, sometimes digging graves side by side. 
assisting in one such detail. The chaplain of the 6th Gordon Highlanders, J. Esselmont Adams, was offered a cigar by the German commander. Adams asked if he could keep the cigar as a souvenir of the truce. The German agreed but asked for a souvenir in return. Adams dug into the lining of his cap for his copy of the soldier's prayer and handed it to the German officer. Then the chaplain conducted a funeral service for nearly a hundred dead from both sides, with the 23rd Psalm read in English and German to the troops lined up across from one another, every head bared. It was almost always the Germans who initiated the ceasefire. Since they were winning the war, they could afford to be magnanimous. Besides, Christmas was celebrated even more ardently in Germany than elsewhere. One of the German reserves who refused to condone the fraternization was a young corporal named Adolf Hitler. Such a thing should not happen in wartime, he protested. Have you no German sense of honor left at all? Eventually, the honor and interests of nations put an end to the spontaneous peacemaking of their soldiers. Commanders on both sides insisted upon war and inevitably their power prevailed. Even amidst the dreamlike soccer matches and giddy toasts, everyone knew the truce could not last. I wonder who will start the shooting, wrote Captain R.J. Arms of the 1st North Staffordshires to his wife. They say fire in the air and we will and such things, but of course it will start, and tomorrow we will be at it hard, killing one another. Some units negotiated a continued ceasefire through December 26th, celebrated by the British as Boxing Day and by the Germans as St. Stephen's. A few held out till New Year's. But the patience of commanding officers had run out. Strict orders to resume hostilities were passed to the front. Polite warnings crossed no man's land. Be on guard tomorrow, a French message warned the Germans. A general is coming to visit our position for reasons of shame and honor, we shall have to fire. The 107th Saxon Infantry Regiment nearly mutinied. Commanded to shoot, they refused. Cursing officers stormed up and down the line as their men protested, we can't, they are good fellows, and we can't. Only when the officers threatened to shoot any soldier who disobeyed did firing resume. But with so little effect, it was obvious both sides were aiming to miss. We spent that day and the next, recalled a German infantryman, wasting ammunition in trying to shoot the stars down from the sky. Commanders on each side hurried fresh troops to the front lines. Uncontaminated by the magical Christmas truce, the newcomers fired on command. And of course, the other side fired back. When news of the truce reached London, newspaper coverage and comment were largely favorable. The Daily Mirror editorialized that the Christmas fraternization had given the lie to the gospel of hate. The soldier's heart rarely has any hatred in it. The newspaper wrote, He fights for his country and against his country's enemies. Collectively, they are to be condemned and blown to bits. Individually, he knows they're not bad sorts. But now an end to the truce. The news, good and bad, begins again. 1915 darkens over. Again, we who watch have to mourn many of our finest men.
the lull is finished. The absurdity and the tragedy renew themselves. And so they did. By Christmas 1915, the front in Flanders had moved only a few hundred yards. To preempt any reprise of the 1914 festivities, the British command ordered continuous artillery barrage by day and trench raids by night. Though scattered fraternization defied orders, it did not spread. The war dragged on through November 1918, costing millions of lives. The peace struck amidst the rubble, only sowed the seeds of another horrific conflict two decades later. At Christmastide in 1914, men at war rediscovered their common humanity in food and drink, in song and sport, even in burying their dead. Their brief holiday could not turn the tide of history. But it reminds us that war springs less from the violence in our hearts than from the urgings of power, pride, profiteering, and false patriotism that we are capable of resisting. It was an amazing spectacle, reflected Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who lost his son in the war, and must arouse bitter thought concerning those high-born conspirators against the peace of the world, who in their mad ambition had hounded such men to take each other by the throat rather than by the hand. At this Christmas of 2014, as cold stars light the night of a world riven by violence, may we remember the soldiers who made peace in no man's land and dedicate ourselves to making peace with justice in every land. Amen. Ashe, and blessed be.